personal statement on Casey. do that. Yeah. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Samuel Chen. Um, I, I am a uh, student at Baylor University in the James Dawson Institute for Church State Studies. I'm currently Doing my graduate work there, I also completed my undergraduate in philosophy and political science, also from Baylor University. Uh, so I am a complete stranger to this whole issue of faith and science. Um, I, um, all right. uh, but uh, um, I, uh, I was excited when I um, got the schedule for this year's ASA meeting. Um, I was raised a pastor's kid, and so when I saw the schedule, I saw that I was going last after all the good stuff was done, and they expected me to keep to a time limit. And I thought, oh, this is great, like father, like son, I'll be right at home. Uh, and so, uh, but in all honesty, it is great to be here. Um, and uh, it's been a great meeting. I hope you guys have enjoyed it so far. I know I have. The questions of life's origin have been a hotly contested and thoroughly debated matter for many generations. From Charles Darwin's theory of evolution to the modern day concept of intelligent design, scholars have bickered often bitterly over this issue. The debate has taken two general directions. First, one that seeks to answer the questions of origin of life for scientific, theological, philosophical, or other reasons. And second, the other direction that seeks to answer the questions of how origin science ought to be implemented in education. While the former descends from a scholarly history and continues to be debated by scholars today, the latter is a recent development in the past century and it's decided both then and now by judges in black robes, something that both Dr. Davis and Casey have touched on. And so I think it's important when we look at origin of life education, origin of life science and public policy to consider those decisions by those judges in black robes. And we come to the lemon test. Uh, I TA a course on religion and the constitution at Baylor and the way I always tell my students to remember the lemon test is that this is a, a test created by the court in uh, the case Lemon v. Kurtzman uh, concerning federal aid to, uh, federal aid to um, uh, religious institutions or, or federal uh, issues with religious statutes, et cetera. And um, the way I always tell them to remember is the court says no aid, no federal help. So if, Life hands you lemons, the court says no lemon aid. Uh, easiest way to remember it. Uh, but they come up with three prongs to the test. And the three prongs are the purpose prong. Your statute has to have a secular legislative purpose. The effect prong. The statute must not have the primary effect of advancing or inhibiting religion. And finally, the excessive entanglement prong. The statute must not result in the excessive entanglement between government and religion. Now, as Casey pointed out earlier, any time a statute is being questioned on whether or not it violates the Establishment Clause, that Congress shall not pass a law that would respect uh, the establishment of religion, 
if it goes through the lemon test, it has to pass all three of these prongs. Fail any one of them, and it's done. And so, what if it gets through all three unscathed, then generally that statute is ruled constitutional. Now, if we look back in the history of origin of life education policy, we also th see three main forms of policy. First is that we saw early on in the 20th century that people began to forbid a particular teaching, namely evolution. We saw this in Epperson v. Arkansas, where they tried to forbid the teaching of Darwinism. Shortly after that, they moved on to mandating a particular teaching, namely creationism. And we saw this with Edwards v. Aguilar in 1987. And then finally, they decided that they were going to begin to not teach nor prohibit any particular uh, view, but inform students that an unresolved debate exists and provide students with a wide spectrum of research available. This is what we saw in Kitz Miller v. Dover in 2005, which was not a Supreme Court case, but was still a federal court case. And so what I'm going to do this morning is take each of these approaches and run them through the lemon test. And through that, we're going to get a somewhat comprehensive picture of whether or not origin of life education, or what form of origin of life education, actually is unconstitutional, actually violates the establishment cause of the Constitution. So we begin with the purpose prong. Does the statute have a secular purpose? And we start with this uh, issue of prohibiting the teaching of evolution, which we saw at Epperson v. Arkansas. Now, you see Epperson v. Arkansas was decided in 1968. This is before the Lemon Test. However, when you read the decision, you see that uh, Abe Fortas, the uh, author of the majority opinion, actually uses what eventually becomes a lemon test in making his decision. And so I think it's fair game to go ahead and run it through the lemon test. Well, what we see is, uh, here's this quote from Justice Fortas. He says, in the present case, there can be no doubt that Arkansas has sought to prevent its teachers from discussing the theory of evolution because it is contrary to the belief of some that the book of Genesis must be the exclusive source of doctrine as to the origin of man. It is clear that fundamentalist sectarian conviction was and is the law's reason for existence. All the emphases that you're going to see here today are mine. Um, there are two major issues with Fortas's decision. The first was that when you actually read the decision, he doesn't address the Arkansas law. He addresses a law from Tennessee that did the same thing. And then he addresses an ad that was run in the Arkansas newspaper by a religious organization that actually was had nothing to do with the policy. It was an ad supporting it. And he says, well, since the Arkansas law was similar to the Tennessee law, and since there was a religious group supporting the Arkansas law, the Arkansas law inherently is religious. As Casey pointed out earlier, that, that's the guilt by association fallacy. Um, and so right on that ground, Fortis was wrong. But on the deeper level, uh, Fortis makes, makes a big mistake here. Uh, he says that it is clear that the fundamentalist sectarian conviction was and is the law's reason for existence. But the purpose prong of the lemon test says nothing about having a religious purpose. It only pr says you must have a secular purpose. And not having a religious purpose and having a secular purpose are not the same thing. Uh, Hugo Black, who wrote a concurring opinion, so he agreed with the decision, uh, but he pointed this out. In the first place, I find it difficult to agree with the court's statement that there can be no doubt that, the Ar that Arkansas has sought to prevent its teachers from discussing the theory of evolution because it is contrary to the belief of some that the book of Genesis must be the exclusive source of doctrine as to the origin of man. He's quoting from Fortis there. And then he says this, It may be instead that the people's motive was merely that it would be best to remove this controversial subject from its schools. 
which could very well be a secular purpose. And so Fortis makes this mistake of confusing the lack of a secular purpose with having a religious purpose. So we move on to the policy of mandating the teaching of creation science, what we saw in Edwards v. Aguilar in 1987. And here, Justice William Brennan, writing for the majority, says, if the law was enacted for the purpose of endorsing religion, no consideration of the second or third criteria of lemon is necessary. In this case, uh, appellants have identified no clear secular purpose for the Louisiana Act. What happened here was Louisiana passed a law, uh, as many laws were passed then, that said if you teach evolution, you have to teach creationism. It was equal access laws, um, balanced treatment laws, whatever you want to call it. But again, what we see here is that Brennan points out, he says there's no clear secular purpose. But at the beginning, he says, the purpose of endorsing religion. Again, confusing the lack of a secular purpose with having a religious purpose, something that's not in the Lemon Test. In fact, in the Edwards case, the stated purpose was academic freedom which Brennan called hogwash. But whether or not academic freedom was actually being preserved is another question. Having the purpose of academic freedom is certainly a secular purpose. One's intention to do something and whether that actually gets done are two separate issues. The purpose prong only questions someone's intention to do something. Again, Brennan misses this point completely. Uh, Again, uh, he says, we need not to be blind in this case to the legislator's preeminent religious purpose in enacting the statute. Again, focusing on the religiousness of the purpose. Um, And so we go ahead and we move on to uh, the the final stage, uh, the final policy here, forming students of the surrounding debate. um, And this is the trial of Kitz Miller v. Dover. Uh, And I will not give you any background on that because we had two great talks on that just now. Um, but what happens here is in the, uh, the brief that was filed with the court, uh, the plaintiffs write, the policy has no secular purpose. And then they talk about singling out evolution, uh, how the policy singles out evolution from all other scientific topics in their curriculum for special negative treatment, how this detracts from the science education, and so on and so on. But they clear very, state very clearly the policy has no secular purpose. And then in his decision, Judge Jones says that, um, talking about the the court's central inquiry, is whether the defendant's primary purpose was to advance religion. Now, there's a bit of an issue here where it seems like Jones gets the first and second prongs of the lemon test mixed up, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But the primary purpose was about religion. Except when we looked at the the brief that was filed, it says the policy has no secular purpose. And so the plaintiffs get the lemon test right. All right, we, we don't see a secular purpose. Judge Jones gets it wrong. He says there's a religious purpose and doesn't give any evidence that there's no secular purpose. He goes on, we have been presented with a wealth of evidence which reveals that the district's purpose was to advance creationism, an inherently religious view. And not getting into uh, the notion of whether or not intelligence designs creationism, I think Dr. Davis and Casey gave us a very, very good uh, explanation of that. Um, even if intelligence design were creationism, the districts was trying to advance creationism, and creationism was an inherently religious view, it doesn't necessarily fail the purpose prong of the lemon test. And so 
What do we know then about the purpose prong of the lemon test? Well, first, it requires a secular purpose. It does not require prohibit religious purpose. An example I like to give is about teaching the golden rule. Certainly, you can teach the golden rule in public school. Do unto others as you wish for others to do unto you. But did you know that most major religions teach the golden rule? Now, if you want to ban everything that has a religious purpose, let's take the golden rule out of school. While you're at it, let's not teach children to not lie. Let's not teach children to not murder. Let's not teach children to not steal. Because those are all in the Ten Commandments. So be careful what you wish for. If you want to get rid of religious purposes, all goes. The second problem with the purpose prong is that it places the burden of constitutionality on the purpose of the statute and not on the statute itself. And I go back to the example of the golden rule. You may have a religious purpose to teach the golden rule, or you have the, the, you know, the, the worst reason in the world to teach the golden rule, but it doesn't mean that the golden rule itself is wrong. And you may have an amazing, wonderful reason to want to teach your students to have fistfights during recess. I would still suggest you don't do it. Because it's a bad idea, regardless of whether your motivation behind it was. And it is dangerous to begin placing the burden of constitutionality on the motivation behind the law instead of the law itself. And that, I believe, is the inherent problem with this first prong of the lemon test. Uh, Brennan um, writes, uh, and this is something that was a quote mentioned earlier, we do not imply that a legislator could never require the scientific critiques of prevailing scientific theories to be taught. Brennan recognizes this, that there, there is a place for these critiques. There is a place for, uh, for teaching origin of life in, in a way it doesn't violate the lemon test. Hugo Black um, in Epperson v. Arkansas says, and this court has consistently held that it is not for us to invalidate a statute because of our views that the motives behind this passage were improper. This is simply too difficult to determine what those motives were. Uh, I think Black is absolutely correct. And so we realize that the purpose prong um, is a moot point, and so we move on to the effect prong. Does the statute advance or inhibit religion? And the question here is, what is the primary effect of the statute? Does the primary effect advance or inhibit religion? And so, again, we take these three approaches and we run them through this uh, prong the lemon test, prohibiting the teaching of evolution. Um, Epperson v. Arkansas, um, what we see here in Fortas's majority opinion, he writes, the law must be stricken because of its conflict with the constitutional prohibition of state laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, quoting from the First Amendment. The overriding fact is that Arkansas's law selects from the body uh, excuse me, the overriding fact is that Arkansas's law selects from the body of knowledge of a particular segment which it prescribes for the sole reason that it is deemed to uh, conflict with a particular religious doctrine, that is, with a particular interpretation of the book of Genesis by a particular religious group. Um, the issue here with, with uh, Fortas's opinion is that it is hardly the case that a prohibition of something um, results in an advancement of something, if that makes sense. So he's prohibiting, they're prohibiting the teaching of evolution, and he's saying, well, that's advancing religion, because Christianity is, is against evolution. Well, that's not quite true, you see, because it may be a good idea to prohibit drinking in your high school, but I certainly wouldn't say the prohibition of alcohol is supporting the Baptist identity. Now, if your cafeteria starts serving green bean casserole covered dishes every lunch, then yes, maybe. 
they're supporting the Baptist identity. But the mere prohibition of alcohol in the public school, high school, might be a good idea because it's against the law, and it may have nothing to do with the Baptist identity. But here, they make the decision that the prohibition of evolution has got to be the advancement of religion. I just simply do not agree. We move on to Edwards v. Aguilar. What about mandating the teaching of creationism? Uh, Brendan writes that the uh, act advances a religious doctrine by requiring either the banishment of evolution or the presentation of the religious viewpoint that rejects evolution in its entirety. Um, but Scalia comments in his dissent that uh, we will not presume that a law's purpose is to advance religion merely because it happens to coincide or harmonize with the tenets of some or all religions or because it benefits religion even substantially. And this becomes a question of how do you attest for a primary effect? as opposed to a secondary effect. Uh, this is also brings in the issue of um, the guilt by association fallacy that was mentioned earlier. Certainly, uh, creationism, perhaps even intelligent design, have tenets that are religious or that are supported by religion. That does not make the concept in and of itself religious or religion. Um, for example, not murdering certainly has religious overtones. I said earlier, it's in the Ten Commandments. It certainly does not mean that every person walking around the streets that is not a murderer is a Christian. So long as we want to talk about the guilt by association fallacy, and a lot of times I think we go places and people will say, oh, well, uh, I'm sure Casey's heard it. You know, Casey's from the Discovery Institute, as if that was supposed to be an attack on his character or something. Um, as long as we're talking about guilt by association fallacy, I think Casey pointed out it cuts both ways. I could come up here and tell you that Barbara Forrest used to be the president of the Louisiana ACLU. And while in that role, she advocated for the legalization, the First Amendment protection of child pornography. I certainly am not going to call every evolutionist I meet a child pornographist. Yet it seems to work vice versa. Uh, Scalia makes, it makes an excellent point saying that just because a re religion may support a certain clause does not mean that the clause is inherently religious. We have to separate primary from secondary effects. And then finally, we come to Kitz Miller case and the approach of informing students of the surrounding debate. Um, and uh, Judge Jones, um, I'm not going to go into this entire quote, but basically Judge Jones makes three points saying, first, that since intelligent design is not a science, it is inherently religious, which, again, is hogwash. Um, studying the Holocaust is not a science. I certainly don't think studying the Holocaust or World War II is inherently religious. You have a lot of things that are not science and not inherently religious. Uh, secondly, he says that, um, uh, that, that critiquing, uh, the disclaimer critiquing uh, evolution implicitly bolsters alternative religious theories. Uh, again, that's, by critiquing a theory, it does not necessarily mean that you're supporting religion. Although, uh, if Jones is right that intelligent design is inherently religious, by or critiques of evolution are inherently religious, by banning those critiques, you could argue that he is inhibiting religion and therefore violating the very test he's trying to uphold. And uh, third and finally, he says that um, referral to the book of Pandas and People is an endorsement of religion, which I simply don't understand. I could refer you to Judge Jones's opinion uh, to learn about Dover. I certainly do not endorse his opinion. Um, and so you, what you see here is what we in philosophy call a lot of uh, fuzzy logic. that uh, really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and then, we, so we finally move on to the final prong. Um, well, before we move on to the final prong, um, 
let's summarize two key problems with the second prong of the lemon test. The first I mentioned earlier is primary versus secondary effects. How do you decipher between the two? How do you decipher what is a primary effect and what is a secondary effect? Uh, the second prong of the lemon test um, says that um, the primary effect cannot advance or inhibit religion. But how are you going to know the difference? And secondly, here the burden of constitutionality is moved on from the motivation behind the, behind the statute to the statute itself, to the effect of the statute. This is a good move. With the problem, though, that you cannot actually know the effect of a statute, let alone its primary effect, until after it has been instated. Yet, the majority of these decisions, the moment the law was passed, the lawsuit occurs, and we actually haven't had a chance to see how it plays out. And I find it difficult to evaluate the effect of something before it plays out. So we move on to the third prong of the lemon test, the excessive entanglement prong. And the question here is now, does the statute excessively entangle government and religion, which would clearly be a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? And we again begin with Epperson v. Arkansas and the notion of prohibiting the teaching of evolution. Now, Judge Fortas does not address this issue of excessive entanglement in Epperson, but I believe that we can take it in the abstract. Uh, I find it difficult that prohibiting something would lead to excessive entanglement. If you're separating something out, you certainly are not entangled with it. Uh, I think that's it's a reasonable and logical um, approach to it, and so I'll leave it at that. Uh, we move on to Edwards v. Aguilar in 1987, where again, they do not address the issue of excessive entanglement. And I think for good reason. But again, if we take in the abstract, we realize that perhaps teaching creationism certainly could involve excessive entanglement. There is, however, no evidence of this when you read through the briefs and the final decisions of the Edwards trial. Um, to be excessive entanglement, they would have to show that creationism is inherently religious, not that simply has religious overtones. And then the issue of vagueness sets in. We certainly could teach something that is inherently religious without violating excessive entanglement. But what exactly does excessive entanglement mean? And so it could be in violation, but it's unlikely, without, especially without further clarification of what it means to be excessively entangled. And finally, we move to the Kitz-Miller trial, where Judge Jones writes, the plaintiffs are not claiming excessive entanglement. And then goes on to say that he only uses the first two prongs of the Lemon Test. The only issue with this part of Jones's opinion is that in the f complaint that was filed, it says the defendant's uh, intelligent design policy also results in an excessive entanglement of government and religion. So they actually did argue excessive entanglement, and I'm not sure what Judge Jones was doing when he was reading their brief, um, because it's clearly in there on pages 21 and 22. Uh, they go on, the defendant's intelligence design policy succeeds in doing so, resulting in excessive entanglement of government and religion. There it is again. And so they do argue it, but Judge Jones does not discuss it, um, again, claiming that uh, there is no, no, excessive entanglement is not argued. Um, again, we can take in the abstract, however. One of the issues that was brought up in the brief was that if the intelligence line policy was read, certainly a student could ask a teacher, well, who do you think the designer is? And if the teacher said God or Allah, or gave, gave any response, would they not then be excessively entangling government and religion? Well, certainly that is a valid, uh, valid co concern, with the exception that it cuts both ways. If you were to teach evolution, 
solely, uh, dogmatically, as uh, most schools do, could not a student at, raise their hand and say, well, I believe in creationism. Would you not also then be excessively entangled? Furthermore, it was an interesting point that they brought this up in Kitz-Miller since the brief went on to say that no teacher would read the statement because no teacher agreed with the statement. And I find it very difficult if no teacher in the district agreed with the statement that any teacher in the district would then say, oh, I believe the designer happens to be God. And so right there within the brief, you see that there's a bit of a rhetoric play there, which when you really break it down, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's a non sequitur. And so is it possible for the reading the statement to have involved excessive entanglement? Well, it could be possible, again, given the vagueness of what excessive entanglement is, but it's unlikely. And so what becomes the two key issues with excessive entanglement prong? Well, first, as I mentioned earlier, what constitutes excessive entanglement? In fact, I believe it is viable that if a Supreme Court case, or if a, if a court case that involves religion and government is argued to the Supreme Court and taxpayer dollars are used in, in the process and so forth, isn't that excessive entanglement for the federal government to decide a religious issue? You could certainly argue it's excessive entanglement. Of course, the second issue then becomes that the burden of constitution, again, is no longer on the statute itself, but on something completely outside of the statute's effect or motivation. And so what do we know then? Constitutional matters, this is important, to understand that what the court looks at. Well, first, they always have a constitutional question. Uh, recently, a few years ago, they ruled on the issue of handguns. At the time, I was the student by legislative director at Baylor University, and um, uh, the, the newspaper called, called me up, and they wanted to talk about the handgun ruling in Washington, D.C. And the first question to me was, do you own a gun? Do you think guns should be, people should be allowed to own guns? How many of the justices on the Supreme Court own guns? And I said, well, that, that's completely irrelevant. The, there's a constitutional question that involves the Second Amendment. Uh, the journalist didn't seem to understand that and said, well, have you ever gone hunting? So that's an irrelevant question. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. Uh, so there's always a constitutional question. That's what the court cares about. This has nothing to do with science. And I hate to put it this way at the science conference, but the court does not give a darn about what science is. Uh, that's, that's not their investigation. Their investigation is what is constitutional. Uh, secondly, it has nothing to do with what is a good or bad idea. In the 1972 case of Moose Lodge v. Irvis out in Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court said that a Moose Lodge, uh, the Fraternal Order of the Meese, as a private organization, could discriminate. They had a restaurant and bar, and an African-American gentleman came in and, and sat there, was not served, sued them, because they were getting government funds uh, for their liquor license, and the Supreme Court said, no, racism is a terrible idea, but it's okay. It's constitutional for a private organization. And then in 1983, in the, the case of Bob Jones University of the United States, they went the other way and said, no, it's a bad idea, and therefore it's unconstitutional. And so the issue is not, not about whether or not it's a good or bad idea. Uh, the issue is whether or not it's constitutional. It also has nothing to do with what's right or wrong. This is what surprised me about Judge Jones' decision. He goes off to say intelligent design is wrong. There, and it's also religious. But the Supreme Court is very clear that if something is religious, they do not rule it as right or wrong. And this brings up, uh, every, well, everything has to do with how religious the statute is. And this brings up what I call the religion problem. Beliefs versus practices. The Supreme Court only looks at practices. But as you and I both know, religion is, goes beyond your practices. And, uh, and so therefore, the Supreme Court says we're never going to rule on the belief. So if it's too religious, we're not going to say it's right or wrong. 
Uh, you can't have it both ways, as Judge Jones tried to. Uh, in Lynch v. Donnelly in 1984, the uh, Supreme Court said that the creche, the nativity scene, is no more religious than Santa Claus. And uh, in the recent case of Salazar v. Bono in California, they said that a crucifix is a cultural symbol, not a religious symbol. And so I propose that the Supreme Court actually has no idea what religion is. Uh, but there is a religion problem, and it's scary that they're trying to defend religious liberty or trying to discuss origin of life from a religious perspective, and they really do not understand what religion is. Sandra Day O'Connor said religion serves legitimate secular purposes of solemnizing public occasions, expressing confidence in the future, and encouraging the recognition of what is worthy of appreciation in society. Again, religion has become secularized and practical as opposed to sacred to the Supreme Court. So how do we evolve beyond Lemon? First, we ought to be very careful about what judicial opinions and rulings we support and oppose and how we go about it. Before we all jump on the Dover bandwagon and say that Judge Jones' decision was of genius, uh, understand that it was probably one of the worst constitutional decisions written, um, like a, ma making a lot of constitutional errors, and also understand what he's saying about religion. The various approaches to teaching uh, origin of life in public school science curricula are not necessarily unconstitutional. They certainly could be but does not mean across the board, broad stroke, that they are. The standard used, the Lebin test, has proven itself to be vague and virtually impassable, an impassable standard that should, quite frankly, be abandoned. And finally, we need a new standard and a complete reassessment of origin of life education policy. Dr. Francis Beckwith, uh, who I TA for at Baylor University, says, this debate over origins from Scopes to Edwards to the present day is one that touches on some deep and important philosophical and scientific questions about the nature of the universe, knowledge, religion, and liberty. In a society of contrary and contradictory religious and philosophical points of view, the law must address with fairness and consistency how public schools ought to deal with the question of origins without violating both the deliverances of science and the rights of the nation's citizens. Um, I'll close... Um, I'll, I'll close with, with a quick example. There is a public school in Pennsylvania. It's not Dover, so don't worry. But there's a public school in Pennsylvania, and uh, there was a, a student in the eighth grade. And uh, at that time, uh, while the student was in the eighth grade, Fox came out with a special called um, The Moon Hoax. And uh, it, it questions, as you may remember, whether or not we actually landed on the moon. Well, that student in his eighth grade science class in the public school they watched the entire Fox special on the moon hoax. And they had worksheets on it. They wrote responses to it, supporting it. They had debates on it. They covered the controversy. And no one said a thing about it being unscientific. Two to three years later, that student was now a high school student. And he decided that it might be uh, worth inviting uh, Dr. Michael Behe to his high school since... Dr. B, he was also from Pennsylvania. He did so uh, in the after-school lecture, thinking that it would be thought-provoking to hear just a different opinion on the topic in the public school. The school didn't think so. They attempted to shut down the lecture in every possible way. The student faced excessive stress, faced bullying, not just from students, but from teachers, faced assault, faced lawsuits, Health deteriorated to the point that he collapsed under the excessive stress that the school and the administration and the teachers put on him. When the lecture was over, lawsuits ensued until a, his lawyer contacted the school and told him to lay off 
or they would be in the lawsuit. The same openness and willing to discuss controversy that he had experienced in eighth grade in the science class was completely absent on the issue of evolution in the extracurricular after-school event. This may seem like a far-fetched example, except I was that student at Mayus High School in the East Penn School District in Pennsylvania. Religion and science. Perhaps it is, as Bruce Thornton says, that scientists should behave as scientists and be willing to question their own assumptions and meet criticism with reasoned debate rather than insult, character, and appeals to authority. Skepticism is science's most valuable tool, and its absence among too many advocates of Darwinian evolution suggests that something other than science is driving their beliefs. For many defenders of evolution, Darwinism is indeed a part of a religious system whose tenets are as much a consequence of faith as of reason. This religion is atheism, a belief that arises not from the evidence but from faith, as any sophomore philosophy major can tell you. Thank you. that he expressed a fervent hope 
that this ruling would serve as a primer for other school boards and other places who were dealing with this issue. And judicial activism is when you try to influence public policy at a, at a larger level and affect parties that are not involved in the case. And for a trial court judge to say something like that at the lowest level of the federal court certainly is indicative of, of a larger goal than simply settling the case in front of them. So it, it reeks of judicial activism. So, so it happened at all anywhere else? It, well, it did influence uh, the, uh, right after the Dover ruling, um, the Ohio State Board of Education actually was considering its policy that simply required critiques of evolution. I was there when this happened, uh, when they repealed their policy in February of 2006 that required scientific critique of evolution. The policy expressly said that, that it did not require the teaching of intelligent design. But all these Darwin lobbyists came in and were threatening lawsuits under the Dover ruling, saying if you retain your policy that simply critiques evolution, you're going to get sued. Well, I've worked in this issue for enough years now that we see those kinds of threats of lawsuits all the time. And they never follow through. They're just empty threats. Now, in the Dover situation, the ACLU, it took them less than two months to file a lawsuit when a school district actually did go so far as to teach ID. But when you're not teaching ID, the, the uh, Darwin lobby is much more skittish about actually following through and filing a lawsuit because they're not confident they're going to win. And that's a good legal strategy. You don't file a lawsuit if you don't think you're going to win. And courts have been pretty clear in the U.S. Supreme Court, as Sam mentioned, has given a pretty strong nod towards the constitutionality of critiquing Darwinism, evolution in schools. So I think that's why, unfortunately, you get, you get school board members in Ohio who uh, are afraid of anything that sounds like a lawsuit threat, and they'll you know, run immediately. So yeah, you want to have something? Yeah, I, I'm not an attorney, and I'm, of course, not competent to argue against Casey's view that the law was, that the judge was being activist by the definition he gave. I don't know enough about the law. Um, part, part of my opinion was what, uh, that he, however, had made a conservative decision was based not only on what I read myself, but and had my view that he had took existing precedents with the evidence in front of him directly applied them to a case. He connected dots he was shown and was asked to connect by both sides. But also, David Opterbeck, a law professor at Seton Hall, on the ASA list, around the time after the decision was released, very much disagreed with early claims that he'd been an activist judge and gave his reasons, and they were consistent with mine. So I'm saying, you know, I, obviously, lawyers disagree all the time. I can't argue against <laughs> Casey. There are those who would. So uh, I'm just going to really briefly jump in here. Um, it, it's interesting because. Like it, the precedent with the lemon test is that once you fail prong one, you're done. Um, and so I really don't think that, that Jones kept within the precedent by failing prong one and saying, well, let me go on because I really want to make a statement here about whether or not intelligent science, which again is, is, is not core precedent. Um, but to direct, directly just address your question, even the, the Supreme Court cases I've been talking about today, those are narrowly tailored. And so, you, I mean, if someone were to come out and start teaching creationism, uh, completely leaving out Genesis, but teaching creation science, no mention of God or anything, um, that could go to the Supreme Court and they could borrow precedence, but they have to make a separate ruling. Because the Edwards case is tailored to a specific law that says if Darwinism is taught, then creationism must also be taught. It's not a flat-out ban on creationism. And so all Supreme Court cases are tailored very, very narrowly. It's uh, Supreme Court justices being smart and trying not to get themselves in trouble uh, by using broad strokes. Um, but I, I think that's something to, to remember. A lot of people who want broad strokes, like uh, David said, the Dover trial, they wanted broad strokes. But that, that, that's really bad um, judging uh, on the part of judges who do that. Okay, another question? Yes. 
question was evoked by Mr. Beckwith's uh, quote, mm -hmm. but I want to hear from Discovery Institute version. But I'd uh, like to hear from Ted Davis first in reply to it. So for all of you, uh, it's a social question. We have, when, when we scientists at the university talk with our colleagues in the biological sciences, evolution is the paradigm. When I talk with many of my church colleagues and many in society, 50% may believe in a younger, younger than uh, intelligent design sorts of ideas. It seems to me there's got to be incredible stresses in the whole fabric of society over the next 10, 20, 30 years if we keep this kind of civil war going on or undisturbed at uh, some level civil war. Where are we going with this? Yeah, that's that's a very relevant question. Let me. You have a quote. Yeah, I want to go to, actually, what I want to do is come back to the slide that I skipped, that Casey mentioned that I skipped. He showed his. I mean, his, you know, I'd sent Casey a PowerPoint. He was responding to something he thought I was going to talk about, which is exactly what a commentator is supposed to do. Um, I simply want to go find that slide. So just give me a second here. Down near the end. Um, Casey showed some data about a recent poll. I have some polling data to show you also that makes your concern come to the front right here. This is the one, right, Casey? This is the slide you thought I was going to, yeah. This is the slide that Casey thought I was going to talk about, and this is the one I thought he meant. Um, how do I get this slide to show up? That one. The bottom of it. Right yeah, there? yeah, yeah. Thanks. Okay, so this. Um, I should have put it here where I got this poll from. I prepared this slide a couple of years ago. I don't exactly remember. That's my problem. I mean, my, my fault. I should have done that. But this is, well, I think it was a Gallup poll, but it might have been a different poll. It was a reliable poll, as far as the, the pollsters were concerned. Um, this shows the demographic about teaching. You can see support teaching only evolutionists in blue, support teaching. Alternative ideas and alternatives in orange. In every single demographic breakdown, except one, except the people with no religion, which we're find out. In every other demographic, demographic breakdown, political or religious, you get very strong support for teaching ID as an alternative. So my point is, you know, science education, what I was going to say here is science education. Science is not democratic in the, in, a, in, a, in the broad, you know, the not in the, in the broad sense, democratic small d. Science is not democratic. The teaching of science in our democratic republic has to have democratic components. So that there's there's clearly a problem here. There's this broad perception that you got to do more than just evolution. It's wrong to teach only evolution, and the scientific community absolutely has its heels dug in saying you can't teach these other things. The ACLU agrees with them. This is not a solvable problem, in my view, within the current public school system. That's one reason I talked about the pluralism issue in public education and the First Amendment. I, I, I really appreciate you raising this slide, Ted. Um, I mean, I think Discovery Institute's perspective is that this is a very complex question. There's certainly uh, social and religious dimensions. Uh, we're certainly not going to deny that. But there is a scientific dimension to it that unfortunately is often denied by some proponents of Darwinian evolution. 
There, is, there are hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific papers that challenge core aspects of neo-Darwinian evolution. ID reprints are increasingly published, peer-reviewed scientific papers expressing their research in mainstream scientific journals. This continues to, to go on and on and on. And as this goes on, it becomes increasingly difficult for evolution lobbyists to support censoring those scientific viewpoints from schools. And I don't use the word censoring lightly. I deal with this issue all the time, and I truly believe that that is what is going on. There is a contingency in this debate, I'm not saying it's necessarily anyone in this room, but there is a contingency in this debate that wants to censor from students scientific views on evolution that they disagree with. And those are scientific views that dissent from evolution. But these scientific views are discussed in the mainstream scientific literature, in some cases quite favorably. They're being promoted by people with PhD credentials just as good as those who support the Darwinian paradigm. And I think that if scientists can debate these core tenets of Darwinian evolution, the universal tree of life, the sufficiency of natural selection, uh, all these basic ideas, the, the rates and modes of evolution, there's no reason why students can't learn about this, especially when many of these lines of evidence, the various lines of congruent evidence that supposedly support common ancestry, students learn about that. Well, what if there's evidence that is not congruent with common ancestry? It's being discussed in the mainstream scientific literature. Why can't students learn about that? So it's being increasingly difficult for the Darwin lobbyists to make uh, reasonable sounding arguments to justify censoring from students scientific views that, that would challenge evolution. And that's why school boards who, who are sympathetic to what the vast majority of their constituents want find very easy justification to do this. We scored, our issue scored two major victories in the last two years. Last year, the Texas State Board of Education voted overwhelmingly to allow students to scientifically critique evolution and other scientific theories as well. And it specifically applied uh, critique to the topic of evolution in their new state science standards. And this came across the board support from, from both Republicans and Democrats. In Louisiana in 2008, the Louisiana Science Education Act passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. It was introduced by a Democrat in the Louisiana Senate where it passed 36 to nothing. And so, you know, this is, it's very difficult to convince reasonable people who don't already have sort of this, uh, this idea in their mind that skeptics basically inherit the wind stereotype. If people don't already have those uh, stereotypes in their mind, it's very difficult to convince reasonable people that there's anything wrong with teaching students about both the evidence for and against evolution. Based on what Casey has just been saying about common descent and what, he's, and what he said earlier, uh, that ID, I think you said ID is perfectly consistent with common ancestry, is that how you put it? Yeah, you can have ID and common ancestry, right, sure. Right. But this is, this is one of the things that bothers me as an observer of all this the most, probably, about the ID issue. I talked about the <laughs> fact that, that ID brackets all of these historical questions such as the creationism issues of the age of the earth, the Big Bang, all of that, and common descent. It brackets all of that. And therefore, you can have all as much ID literature as you want attacking common descent or and undermining the confidence of the general public who don't know the science um, as much as you want and say, oh, you know, and turn around and say, ID is consistent with common descent. You know, I'm aware of one ID proponent, major ID proponent, who thinks common descent is true, Michael B. There's there, one of the most prominent ones. others, but... If there are others, it's not clear to me who they are. Okay. Uh, it is clear to me that Michael B. He is such a person. It's also clear to me that Bill Denson, <coughs> Bill Johnson, Steve Meyer, John Wells are opposed to common descent. And so, you know, one gets the impression that 
ID is anti-evolutionism in that sense, the traditional sense of anti-evolutionism, long before the ID controversy, is people who are opposed to common descent, and especially to human evolution. That's what anti-evolutionism is. That's what the that's the term special creationism, which can as opposed to creationism pure and simple, special creationism is anti-evolutionism. And that's why Ken Miller said accurately at the Dover trial that ID is a form of special creationism. He didn't say creationism pure and simple, he said special creationism, and that's what he's referring to. So it's uh, I think that's the case. ID ultimately really is a form of special creationism, the exception of Mike Kennedy being the one who proves the rule. So, but there we are. Okay, no, that's fair, fair enough. I mean, I think I want to make the point that, I mean, ID certainly, as far as the Big Bang is concerned, actually ID openly embraces the Big Bang theory. If any of you read the book, The Privileged Planet by Jay Richards and Guillermo Gonzalez or watched the video, I mean, ID finds fine-tuning arguments that are in many ways based upon mainstream cosmology and Big Bang thinking to be very persuasive as an argument for cosmic design. Um, and as far as the geological timescale goes, I mean, I don't know of a single leading ID book that doesn't just take the geological timescale at face value. So I, mean, I would expect ID to be a theory of everything. If you want to know how old the Earth is, you know, go ask a geologist. I, I was a geologist. I have a couple degrees in geology. And I find the evidence that the Earth is old quite persuasive. Um, and ID is a theory of design. It's not a theory of radiometric dating. So I don't have a problem with ID not talking about the age of a fossil. Now, as far as common descent is concerned, um, ID is not special creation. Um, Bill Densky might uh, have some questions about common descent, but he's not come at all out in favor of special creation. He's made it very clear that you can have ID. Uh, it does not require miracles, that uh, God could be using some telic process inherent in the universe. You don't have to have a miraculous intervention with ID. And ID proponents, including Densky, uh, Wells, Meyer, and uh, Behe and other folks as well have been pretty clear on this. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, there are questions about common descent among some ID folks. I would say there's diversity of views on that point. Um, there's sort of two major schools of thought within the ID movement. I think this is a, a healthy sign. There's sort of what I would call the front-loading camp, which tends to support more of a common descent view and sees an unfolding of life, uh, that sort of a pre-programmed evolution that is uh, certainly guided but also pre-programmed. And then there's more of a view that does not see uh, evolutions being front-loaded or pre-programmed. And uh, whether there's special creation, even in that view, is a, is a separate question. But I don't think that ID requires special creation at all. If you look at the definition of ID in various places, you're quite right. ID does not require any of those things. And then how do you infer what ID is when you're looking at ID? You're looking at the major books you talked about. That's why I've said many times ID is basically a modern form of older creationism, and it's it, in, the, in the way it actually functions in society, with books such as the ones you referred to, older special creationism, which accepts all of the other, all the traditional geological and cosmological pieces, and not the biological piece. So, I mean, I think I think that's what it actually, in fact, is in practice, with the outstanding exception of Michael Behe, a very important exception. Um, but uh, then, what, but see, one can always say officially. ID is fine with all of this. In practice, ID is a certain thing. Now, as regards to the film, this is interesting, interesting I think. The, Guillermo Gonza the film based on Guillermo Gonzalez's book, The Privileged Planet, the DVD based on that, uh, had its debut at the Smithsonian. And the folks at Discovery very kindly invited me to go, sent me a ticket, and I went. Two hour drive down to Washington, but I went. Watched it that night, it's very interesting. There's not one hint in the film 
of an old earth creationism. The DVD is very carefully crafted to present the impression that young earth creationism could very well be the case. It doesn't, doesn't endorse it at all, could be the case. I noticed that all the way through the film. When I was leaving, I was, there was a group of young earth creationists right behind me in the receiving line for that, that was held afterward. There was a little reception afterward for Gonzalez and Richards that I went to. A group of young earth creationists behind me who were just ecstatic about what they'd just seen. Uh, you know, great creationist film. And that's the impression you can easily get. For some time, the DVD was sold by creationist <coughs> organizations on their websites. The book was not. Because if you read the book, it's abundantly clear, from the, almost from the first page, Gonzalez and Johnson accept standard scientific scenario for the universe and the Earth. Um, they simply think you can interpret it in terms of design. I think it's my fault. I think it's an excellent book. And I defended Gonzalez to the president of Iowa State twice in letters I wrote, I wrote, I wrote to him. But the DVD is complete another story. And I've even gotten someone to tell me, admit privately, that yeah, it was probably marketed, set up and marketed in such a way that it would be sold by creationist groups. And it would give you the impression that it's basically a creationist movie. So I think this comes back again to the two lines. They ID brackets all of this, they bracket all of this in my view, all the historical stuff, because they want to get a big tent for political reasons. You want to leave all that controversial stuff outside. As Phil Johnson says, first thing you have to do is get the Bible out of the equation, and that can happen later. So because you bracket all of this, you leave the science so nebulous. What does count as good science? If, if, if none of that stuff is good science, if none of that stuff is following the evidence, following where the evidence leads, what is? And so that's, I think that greatly hurts the problem of getting ID accepted. Fair enough. And obviously, you've watched that DVD ID with a closer eye for age issues than I have. I, but I can say that the Lester Media, which published the uh, Privileged Planet DVD, just came out last year with a DVD on the Cameron Explosion, where they do actually expressly adopt the older time scale discussing millions of years. So the same people just put out a, a DVD that expressly adopts the older time scale and explore evolution, the textbook that Discovery, some Discovery fellows and some other folks put together um, for use in public schools quite expressly adopts the millions of years older time scale. So I just want to make that point. Go ahead. So um, at, at root, it seems like the I think I said what I wanted to say about that during the presentation. You know, that naturalism is the root problem, as Johnson and others see it. And the question ultimately is whether it's legitimate to apply methodological naturalism in the historical sciences. And that, and that seems inherently like a religious question. Well, it may have some religious overtones. There could be religion could be relevant to that. I would grant that, but at the same time, you know, when, let me, let me put it this way. 
I think this, I think naturalism of this type, methodological naturalism, is the legacy of the ancient Greeks, among others. And if you look at the Hippocratic treatise, the ancient Hippocratic treatise called On the Sacred Disease, which is about epilepsy, on the sacred disease. What the author of that said is he, he was angry at who people he called quacks and charlatans, who set called this the sacred disease to cloak their own ignorance. That, that, that's how he put it. And that's basically the theological issue and scientific issue, I think, in a nutshell. Is, is, is it, is, are we going to drag in, uh, are we going to come to the conclusion that phenomenon X is uh, a divinely caused phenomenon just because we do not know the natural causes? That, that's, that's the bottom line. I mean, so the, the religion comes in. The philosophy comes in. I'm not going to say more about that right now. Um, Quacks and Charles, I thought you were talking about me for a moment. Um, but uh, I, I'll actually respond to that with a question. Um, and, and this is, uh, first of all, I think that's a great question. This will kind of answer the last question, too. Um, a lot of places I go, I mentioned that I have a degree in philosophy, a degree in political science. I'm currently working on a degree in church-state relations. Um, and so a lot of the places I go, uh, what I get is, well, um, you know, intelligent design is not science, it's a philosophy or, or religion or theology or something. Um, and, uh, and that, of course, brings in issues of methodological naturalism and all that. Um, but I usually told, you know, you, well, you're a student of philosophy. This is not something you're going to grasp. And the only question I have to ask back is your uh, decision that intelligent design is not science, was that based off science, a scientific decision or is that a philosophical decision? Um, I understand some of the rationales for why scientists prefer to use methodological naturalism. Science needs to be based upon reliable, predictable behaviors, and we can observe the natural world and make reliable predictions based upon our present-day observations of how the world works, and then apply those predictions to explain past events. That's uniformitarianism. That's present is the key to the past thinking from Charles Lyell, and that's exactly how intelligent design works. Intelligent design starts with observations about the kind of complexity that is produced by intelligent agents when they act. It then uses those uh, observations to construct cause and effect relationships between intelligence and the origin of certain types of information. We find certain types of information, such as irreducible complexity or complex specified information in the, in the data and in the historical record, then we infer an intelligence. So ID proponents openly embrace uniformitarianism and the approaches of the historical sciences uh, Ted alluded to uh, Stephen Meyer's book, Signature in the Cell. Um, he's not the first person to argue that, but he lays it out better than anybody else has, I think. If you want to understand how ID uses the historical sciences, um, I would encourage you to read that book. I've, it's never been my life's goal to bash methodological naturalism. I'm really not into that. Quite frankly, you know, you can define science however you want. Um, I think that if you want to define science as methodological naturalism, ID does not fail such a definition of science. It does not go beyond what we can learn by studying the empirical world, and it limits its claims to what we can learn through the scientific method, and it does not uh, require appealing to the supernatural. Doug. Yeah, I guess with regard to what, uh, the confusion that Ted was bringing out about the bracketing of so many things, you didn't want to accept that ID as a form of special I, I just don't get it. I, I don't understand. I, I'm willing to think 
ideas can pass. If you want to have a special creation view, that could be a form of ID, but ideas require that. So how do we define special creation? I, I guess what I think of is creation ex nihilo, God miraculously, you know, one second there's an empty spot on this uh, stage, and the next section there's a koala sitting there, right? I mean, that's sort of special creation, or you know, put whatever you want there. Um, so does ID require that? No, certainly not. Um, I, there could be common ancestry, and God could still be intervening and, uh, and in, in, a, in, a, in a deliberate, detectable way to modify the DNA of species. Now, you could call that a form of special creation, I suppose, and then there is a breakdown of the natural hereditary transmission of genes, uh, but it's different from the poof hypothesis, creation ex nihilo. Um, and it may be uh, very different where you don't have uh, abrupt transitions. You might, in some cases, have a slight gradual change. Some people have said, um, ideas is like a very uh, slow form of tinkering. I mean, it, it could, there's a lot of different possibilities with what I'm saying. Am I saying that ID has to be one of these? No. What I'm saying is that these are all options. Um, I'm, my background is not in philosophy, first of all. I'm a, I'm a lawyer and a geologist, so I'm not at all going to claim to be an expert on sort of the philosophical details of how God can interact with the natural world in a detectable way that you know, uh, allows for uh, him to work in, in a way that's not uh, miraculous, but yet still he's, he's interacting, he's working in a detectable fashion. That, that could happen, uh, but, I, but I, I know that um, there are a lot of ideal components out there who are keen on the idea of front-loaded design, which is the idea that, I mean, let me just give you a hypothetical. Maybe right, right. of the details of the mechanism that were used to implement the design of the natural world are sort of focusing on the wrong question. The, qu the right question is, it, was there intelligent design or was there not? 
You can have intelligent design and not have to specify exactly what the mechanism was, and you can detect design without necessarily specifying the exact details of the, the way that that design was implemented in the world. Right, and, and detecting design, that's not an de detecting design is a, is a, you can detect design scientifically. And there's plenty to talk about. Darwin evolution claims that biological structures arise in a step-by-step -step gradual processes where there is no intelligent um, agency that is involved in producing those structures. Intelligent design says that there is intelligent agency. There's so much to talk about. When we, you know, Doug Axe, who's done mutational sensitivity tests on uh, the beta-lactamase enzyme in E. coli, which allows for antibiotic resistance to penicillin, he's found that functional protein folds are extraordinarily rare, and that the odds of getting a functional amino acid sequence that can yield a stable protein fold are islands in a vast sea of non-functional protein folds. So what we see is that there are incredible, incredibly high levels of complex and specified information biology. How did biological structures achieve such high degrees of fine-tuning? Can a Darwinian process, in a step-by-step -step fashion, in a Darwinian search, can it find those uh, high, uh, highly optimal structures, or is there uh, something else going on here? And I think that we can infer to an intelligent cause based upon the fine-tuning we find in biology uh, without having to get into religion or special creation or any of these religious questions. This is a scientific question, and in our experience, there's only one known cause that generates this sort of, sort of high levels of complex and satisfied information. It's a scientific inference. So, I mean, I understand you like to have a theory of everything, but you have to understand ID is trying to not go beyond what the data can tell us. It's trying to limit its claims to what we can learn through the scientific data. And I'd say we can infer design. And the fact that ID does not answer other questions doesn't mean that it doesn't answer some questions quite well. Well, this is, again, the two-facedness, the Janus face here of ID is what, is what really bothers me the most. Because, as you said, ID wants to say what the scientific evidence shows. The scientific evidence shows the universe began 13.7 billion years ago. The scientific evidence shows that the Earth is 4.65 billion years old. The scientific evidence shows that we don't know very much about the origin of life. The scientific evidence shows that common descent looks like it's true. So this is what the, this is what the scientific evidence shows. If ID were about what the scientific evidence shows, all of those historical questions wouldn't be bracketed it would simply be understood that there's a sharp focus on whether or not Darwinian mechanisms are adequate to account for the diversity of life. The question would be clear, people could debate it, everybody would understand what ID is about. I participated in a large listserv, approximately 2,000 people who were mostly ID people, uh, I mean, not a listserv, a, a conversation that was not public, and I asked uh, these individuals at one point, what is the deal? Is ID really complaining about common descent? or is ID really complaining about the mechanism to get there? There was a, I asked for responses, mostly private ones. There was a profound division of the house on this and a very large support for saying, no, I, ID cannot accept common descent. So I mean, I'm saying whatever, however, that's, that wasn't coming from discovery anybody. This was just a large number of people who were interested in ID, not ID leadership, but the fact is that the perception is there that this is what ID is about. It's anti-evolutionism. And the perception is just encouraged by the fact that all these historical questions are officially bracketed. Why bracket those obvious things? Like the, the age of the Earth and the universe, as you said, these aren't controversial for practically all ID leaders. Say so. This is intelligent design. I just did. Accepts all of that. No, actually, well, no, it's bracketed. 
accepts it, accepts it. There's no statement anywhere that this is what intelligent design is about, it's just this question. That all these all this other science is real good science. We think it should be taught and not we shouldn't raise objections to all of this. The objections come in simply about the mechanism. But that's not it. It's a bigger package. I I'm just I, I mean I, I feel like that what you're asking for Ted is what I see in ID Ryan. So I guess I don't understand what the problem is, so I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, right, perhaps, Bob, Bob behind you there, Bob. Uh, yeah. No, that's right. Uh, perhaps a way of removing those brackets and kind of focusing things in a way that, that scientists can um, uh, accept more readily and, and maybe the public can, can understand more clearly is if we really focus on what, how to identify an uh, intelligent design, what intelligence really means, because there's, there is not a clear-cut understanding, and I don't think it, you know, the specified complexity it, um, uh, and all of irreducible complexity, all that sort of stuff, they're very fuzzy in my mind. They're not well agreed upon. This is a way to identify intelligence. If you can come up with a way to identify intelligence, you've got a science on your hands. But if you're going to, everybody has their own version of how we identify intelligence, then you're going to have the, you know, it be about all of these other things. If you can really nail that down, got a way to go, and, and I think it'd be useful to all sorts of other disciplines. I mean, SETI would love to have a way to really just, you know, define this is intelligent signal, this is not an intelligent signal. I don't think that has been really flushed out yet, and that's one of the problems I need have. I mean, I, I appreciate your comment very much, and in my opinion, ID proponents, this actually is an area where there is great consensus, which is how do we detect design by, by finding complex and specified information. Read uh, the design input by William Dempsey. Read some of the peer-reviewed papers by Doug Axe or Stephen Meyer. Um, read, uh, read even uh, some of Michael Behe's work, and it's converging on detecting complex and specified information, of which irreducible complexity is a special case. So I, I do appreciate your comments, and I think that those are good comments, and I think ID reports are, are, are hearing those sorts of comments, so yeah. Sure, well, I, I, I'm not familiar with the, the survey that was done. Um, there's a couple reasons why she may say that. One is that there really aren't ID proponents in the academy, and the other is that ID proponents who she interviewed did not feel comfortable being openly pro-ID. Um, I know dozens and dozens and dozens of pro-ID scientists in the academy, and as a matter of fact, there's a, a list, it's not a list of pro-ID scientists, but it's a list of scientists that are skeptical of Darwinian evolution. I think it's up to like 850 PhD scientists now. 
um, and if they're skeptical of natural selection. But as far as ID goes, there are a great many uh, PhD scientists, and there's more and more who are getting their PhDs all the time. Um, unfortunately, there is a pattern of discrimination. I'm not citing some conspiracy theory that uh, people are trying to, there's an organized group of people trying to suppress ID, but if you're familiar with American history, the idea of institutionalized discrimination against certain viewpoints really is not all that controversial. Um, and I've dealt with enough cases as an attorney who uh, has defended scientists who've experienced this form of persecution that I've seen that a lot of folks out there would fear for their jobs if they were to become openly pro-ID. Um, I'm not trying to make this a convenient excuse as to why apparently this person is not fine to pro-ID scientists. Um, I know there are pro-ID scientists out there. There's a lot of them. I don't need to be convinced of that. I have a interaction with them on a regular basis. Um, and they are doing research. If you want to learn about it, go to the website biologicinstitute.org, which is a pro-ID research lab that does both bench laboratory research and uh, uh, theoretical computer simulations, or go to William Dembski and Robert Marx's evolutionary informatics lab, which is evoinfo.org. And they're publishing uh, other theoretical simulations of evolution and looking at ID questions. And there's other folks out there as well who are doing and publishing ID research in the mainstream scientific community. Um, so, uh, I mean, is it a majority paradigm? Of course not. I mean, it is very much a minority, but I know that there are a lot of ID folks out there who uh, really don't feel comfortable um, discussing their views. Uh, as an example, Scott Minnick, after he testified at the Dover case, um, there was basically, he had to be punished by the University of Idaho. They instituted a speech code on the campus. The president said that only pro-evolutionary views can be taught in the classroom. And that speech code is still in force. So how does that make a, pro a young, untenured pro-ID scientist feel? Makes them feel very insecure to be openly pro-ID when your president just instituted a speech code on your campus that bars your viewpoint from being discussed in the classroom. So it is very unfortunate, and this is an area where I think the scientific community, I would hope, can be a little bit more open-minded and tolerant of, of some of the minority dissenting viewpoints. This is an area where there's no distance between, between Casey and I. I do believe that that the scientific establishment has not sufficiently allowed dissent on this particular issue. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, for example, um, there's a gentleman at, University, at, at uh, Iowa State in religion named Hector Avalos, who's a, an atheistic professor of religion, who organized on campus a petition drive that did not name Guillermo Gonzalez individually, but that wanted to express the sentiment that the university was completely distancing itself from intelligent design, circulated this petition to colleagues, got more than 100 signatures. Uh, I know an unnamed young faculty member there, no longer teaching there, who is not, not a Christian, not even a monotheist, who signed it, regrets at this point that he did, because he, did, he, was, he signed it during his first year on campus he was aware of what these issues were about because he also thinks that at this point that, that uh, Gonzalez was the target in a very unfair way. I, I, I'm convinced that's the case myself. That uh, Avalos, was, who was the advisor to the campus atheist group, was very, very concerned about what Gion's, you know, Gonzalez was saying and wanted to undermine Gonzalez's credibility on campus. You know, when, when Richard Dawkins and Carl Sagan and uh, Jerry Coyne write what they write about science and its 
interpretations in a larger sense. Nobody on campus circulates petitions distancing the university from what they're, what they're saying. Nobody does that. When Gonzalez does this, somebody organizes a petition drive. Uh, I just find that appalling. And I basically told the president of Iowa State that twice in letters. And I think that Pavlos uh, poisoned the atmosphere with the evaluation of Gonzalez's uh, tenure. I appreciate your words very much on that, Ted. And that really, it, it means a lot. And I think that, just very briefly, I mean, this reflects something that I think I want everybody to understand. You don't have to be pro-ID to be concerned about the academic freedom issue. Academic freedom affects all of us. And I really appreciate what you say, Ted, because I think that this is an issue that should be very concerning to you if you just support freedom of speech. These are wonderful people, in many cases Christian scientists, men and women, who have experienced some really terrible things that have happened to them. I know many of these people personally, and some of them have been to ASA conferences before. And it should really trouble you. What, whatever you think about ID, what's happened to them should really trouble you. Yes, in the back? Yeah. No, behind, right. The young woman behind,
point out problems with evolution. But the, but the thing is that any uh, scientific theory has problems. And if you're developing one, you know, I mean, the person who developed it probably knows that it's wrong by the time they you know, put it all together uh, because they see all these problems. But, the, but science continues to learn other mechanisms or, you know, other